Matthew chapter number one tonight. Matthew chapter number one is where we'll find our text this evening. And um, I want to preach to you what I believe is somewhat of an unusual message and sort of kicking off this month of December. Matthew uh, chapter number one, and I want you to look with me if you would in verse number one, where the Bible says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Tonight, with the Lord's help, I'd like to preach you a message that I've entitled, The Generation of Jesus Christ. The Generation of Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, of course, we know that the calendar flipped from November to December. The month of December, of course, is the last month of the year, and so it's significant in that way, as many people are making plans for next year and and thinking about what 2023 might hold. And uh, I certainly trust and hope that this past year, the year 2022, has been a blessed one for you and for your family. I, I do believe that it's been a blessed year for our church. But might I also say that the month of December is significant, not just because it's the final month of the year and it prepares us and we begin to think about the year that is to come and we look back over the year that was, but the month of December is significant because, of course, it is the month in which we celebrate Christmas or the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. A Christmas day is celebrated every year on the 25th day of December, but you know as well as I do that truthfully this uh, this is really a month-long celebration, uh, and for those of you that maybe begin listening to Christmas music like around Halloween or some maybe even before that, it's a several-month-long celebration. It seems as if Christmas trees are being put up earlier and earlier, decorations are being put out earlier and earlier, and I don't suppose I have too much of a problem with that. I do sort of draw the line of like swimming in a pool in the summer and somebody playing Christmas carols. I just can't get behind that myself. But hey, if that's what you like, then, uh, then, then so be it. Uh, but, but the truth is, is that Christmas is much more than just one day. Uh, Christmas has become, in our culture, has become uh, months in some respects of just sort of preparing ourselves, decorations, music, and events, and planning, and, and, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, the building, of course, as we come into it, is decorated beautifully. Uh, the music of our church reflects the season. Uh, there are a myriad of Christmas events and activities going on this month, and I would just say that it's only natural uh, for us to also um, preach and hear messages designed to remind us of the reason for this season as well. Now, throughout the Word of God, you will find several places where genealogical records are recorded and are given. Now, you understand that the Jews were extremely careful to keep meticulous records in this particular way. Uh, here's why. They took great pride in which tribe they were from, uh, who they were descended from. That meant a great deal to most Jews who were living during the time in which the Bible was being given. Interestingly enough, if you were to introduce yourself or meet a Jewish person today, most likely they would have no clue what tribe they're a descendant of. 
Most of them would have no idea. Are you a member of the tribe of Levi? Are you a member of the tribe of Judah? Are you a member of the tribe of Benjamin? Most of them would have absolutely no idea. The reason for that, of course, was that around the time in which the Bible was being completed, the Jews were mostly dispersed because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion, and they were scattered throughout the world, and their homeland and their country really was decimated by various invasions and enemies and foreign influences, leaving leaving their records in a state of disarray. And the truth of the matter is, is that most of them lost very little interest in trying to keep up with those sort of things. Most of them were just trying to survive, were just trying uh, to make it in whatever land it was that they were living in. And so uh, while most Jews living today have no clue, they have no idea what tribe they're from, can I say it is not necessary for us in most cases to know who hails from which tribe today. That really doesn't make a huge difference in the overall scheme of things. But I do want to I do want to present to you and I want to try to build a case that there is one Jew that it is vital we know which tribe he is from and who he is descended from. That's vitally important. You see Christ was promised to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. And Matthew, as he is writing his gospel, he begins, he begins this gospel by saying, listen, I want you to know something. I want you to know, you, listen, you can doubt a lot of things about who Jesus was and whether or not he was truly the Messiah, but I want you to know something. It is clear that he, he measures up in this realm. He is the son of Abraham and he is the son of David. Christ, the son of Abraham. Well, where does the Bible promise that's going to be the case? Well, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 3, God, in his, in, in his initial promise to Abraham, he says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now you say, well, where does the promise that Christ would be the son of Abraham fit into there? Well, I think you take that last phrase of that verse and you extrapolate that out of that verse and you'd say, you know, the truth is, is that the reason why Abraham is a blessing to me, the reason why Abraham is a blessing to you has really nothing to do with Abraham himself, but it has everything to do with the seed of Abraham. You see, who came from Abraham's line? Jesus came from Abraham's line. And while Abraham makes a little bit of difference in our lives as we read his story and as we follow his example of faith, the one who really makes a difference in our lives that came from Abraham is Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 12 and verse number 3, I think we can, with, with, with reality, say that this is a promise, speaking that, listen, Jesus is going to be your son, and from you, uh, really from him, shall every family of the earth be blessed. Now, Genesis 22 and verse number 18, the Bible says, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now notice that word seed, because the Apostle Paul is going to address that in the book of Galatians. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3 and verse number 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. 
So understand, listen, in order for Jesus to have been the Messiah, he had to have been the son of Abraham. So while a lot of times we come to the genealogical records and we sort of just dismiss them and we sort of, you know, glaze over as we're reading them, this this genealogical record is of utmost importance because if Jesus is not the son of Abraham, then he cannot be the Messiah. This is, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies that are given in the Old Testament. But not, as he, not only does Matthew proclaim him to be the son of Abraham, but he also proclaims him to be the son of David. So let's consider Christ the son of David. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. So there it is again, thy seed, uh, your, uh, your children, those who are coming after you, David, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I think there's a dual promise that is being given here. I think that there's a reference, no doubt, to Solomon, because he's talking about the fact that Solomon is going to be the one who builds the the, the temple. But notice what he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whose kingdom is he talking about? Solomon no longer sits on a throne today, but Jesus is still a king today. This is no doubt a reference to Jesus coming from the line or from the seed of King David. The Bible says in Psalm 132 and verse number 11, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. Jeremiah 23 and verse number 5, the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And so Matthew is clearly stating his purpose for giving this genealogical record. He says, at the beginning of this writing, I am trying to prove to you that Jesus did indeed descend from Abraham and for David. From David, you see, for Jesus to be the Messiah, he must be the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, this is vitally important, uh, without question. However, I I want us to move beyond the first verse of this particular genealogical record, and I want us to dig just a little deeper into this record, because I I I think there's an incredible message that's found in Matthew chapter number one. You see, you're going to find something very, very unusual as you read through the first 17 verses of the first chapter of Matthew. And here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover that there are several women that are listed in the genealogical record of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, why is that significant? Well, here's why that's significant. Because most of the genealogical records found in God's word only contain fathers and sons. Usually there's, there's very little, there's very little uh, mention of daughters and there's very little mention of mothers. Now, ladies, I, I don't know what to say about that other than just to tell you that's just the way it was. I, I, I didn't write that. God gave it to us. And that's how genealogical records were done in that day. Um, and so, you know, if there's an offense to be taken, um, you know, I, you just have to take that up with the Lord and ask him, Lord, why? Because women have just as much in the, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, without the women, there would be no sons, period. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's the way that it's recorded. It's the way that it's given to us. However, 
However, for some reason here in Christ's genealogical record where Matthew is trying to establish that Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David, we discover that there are five women who are listed. That's quite unusual. And I have to tell you, there must, there must be a reason. Why, why, would, these, why would these women be listed when, when there's hardly any women listed anywhere in genealogical record? Why would God go out of his way to list the women that are found in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter number one? Well, I want us to consider who these women are first and foremost. Uh, I want to just kind of tell their story a little bit, and then I want to maybe just glean just three specific truths from, from them being included in Christ's genealogical record that is given to us here in Matthew's gospel. The first woman that is referenced is a woman by the name of Tamar. And you'll find Tamar in Matthew chapter number one in verse number three, where the Bible says, and Judas begat Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. So her name is listed there. It's spelled T-H-A-M-A-R. I think if you were to read it in the book of Genesis, you would discover that it's spelled T-A-M-A-R, but it's the same person. And Tamar was the, was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Um, remember, remember that Jesus had to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so, of course, Matthew is letting us know that not only is he the son of Abraham and he's the son of David, but he's also the son of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we discover that Tamar was the wife of Judah's firstborn son, a man by the name of Ur, spelled E-R. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter number 38 that Ur was a very wicked man. In fact, he was so wicked that the Lord slew him. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why God slew him, uh, but it does tell us that the Lord, uh, the Lord killed him for his wickedness. The Bible says in Genesis 38, 7, and Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Sometimes we read these scriptures and we think, you know, that seems unfair, that doesn't seem right. And I just want to remind you that, listen, uh, which one of us dare place ourselves in the position of criticizing God? Who do we think we are? To stand and to cast judgment on the God of heaven. Truth of the matter is, every one of us, every one of us are wicked enough for God to slay us as well. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Uh, his, his mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great. And for whatever reason, in Genesis 38 and verse number 7, God said, I've had enough of Ur and enough of his activity, enough of his wickedness. I am killing him. So Judah's response, because now he has a daughter-in-law who is a widow, and Judah's response was to give his second-born son, a man by the name of Onan, to Tamar, so that Ur's name would not perish from off of the earth, so that Ur's name could live on. Uh, but he too, this man by the name of Onan, he too died before a son could ever be born. In follow-up to this, Judah 
comes to Tamar and he says to Tamar, I promise you, I promise you, I'm going to give my third son to you, but he's too young to be a husband at this point in time. He was a man by the name of Shelah, or Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H. And uh, we don't know how old he was. Perhaps he's just a young boy. And Judah says, listen, you hold on. You give me a couple of years. And when he reaches a certain age, I promise you, I will give him uh, to you to be uh, his, your husband. And uh, you can have a child with him. And that way, the name of Ur does not perish from off of the earth. And so the Bible says that, uh, that Tamar went and she moved in with her family. And from that day on, she wore her widow's garment. But Judah, Judah never fulfilled the promise. Judah, in some respects, left her hanging. Even though Sheila, at this point in time, is now a grown man and he's capable of being a, a husband and, and, and of, and of uh, marrying this woman by the name of Tamar, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know, maybe just out of sight, out of mind. I don't know why Judah failed to deliver, failed to fulfill this promise, but he did. One day she learned she learned, Tamar learned, that her father-in-law, Judah, was going to a town called Timnath. You can read all of this in Genesis 38. I'll be honest with you, it's somewhat of a disturbing story, which makes its inclusion here in Matthew chapter number one all the more fascinating. She learns that Judah's going to Timnath. He's going to shear his sheep there. And so here's what Tamar did. She laid aside her widow's garments, and she disguised herself with a veil. She sat by the side of the road, and it led Judah to see her. She had the veil. He did not know who she was. And it led him to think that she was a prostitute, that she was a harlot. And the Bible says that he, he went in unto her and that he had a relationship with her. He sinned morally with this woman by the name of Tamar, Tamar never knowing, never knowing that this woman was his own daughter-in-law. It's, it's there, Genesis 38. The product of this immoral relationship, of this, of this chance encounter, the product of this encounter was two twin boys who were born. Their names are found in Genesis 38, but they're also found here in Matthew 1 and verse number 3. Their names are Perez and Zerah. In my notes, I've highlighted the name Perez because he is the one through which Jesus Christ would eventually come. It's not that Zerah is completely insignificant. His name is listed. His name is listed in both counts. But Perez, Perez is the son through which eventually the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come. So there's Tamar. She's mentioned in Matthew 1 and verse number 3. And I think we would all agree it's a bizarre story. In fact, it's almost a sort of a weird one for us to talk about. And uh, one that you probably don't want to, if you've got young children, you know, rehash it on your way home in the car. But it's in the Bible. It's a Bible story. It's there. And we're just trying to be frank here. And again, I, I think with those thoughts in mind, it makes her inclusion in this particular account all the more fascinating. Because, because listen, there is an undeniable connection between Tamar and Judah and Jesus Christ. Now, now, don't lose sight of that, because we're going to try to tie all these things together in a moment. The second woman that is mentioned is a woman by the name of Rahab. Most of us are very familiar with her. Her name is spelled a little bit differently in this account as well. We discover her in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5, where the Bible says, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and 
Boaz begat Obed and, and so forth and so on. Well, we know her better as Rahab. And while, and while Tamar presented herself, perhaps in a very inappropriate way, by the side of the road and that place of Timnath, the Bible is very clear that Rahab actually was a harlot, that she was a prostitute living in Jericho prior to Israel conquering this particular city. While she lived there, she harbored, the Bible tells us, she harbored two Israelite spies, and she hid them from the authorities in her city when they came looking for them. You can read about that in Joshua chapter number 2, verses 1 to 22. She even lied. She even lied to the authorities that came. Uh, where, where are these men? Do you know? I have no idea where these men are. Maybe you ought to send them. I, I, think, they, I think they escaped out, out of the wall. Send them, send them far out. And, and the whole time, they're, they're, hidden, they're hidden up on a roof. She lied. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. It was well known that that's who Rahab was. In fact, you'll find several times throughout Scripture that she is referred to, not, not just as Rahab, but Rahab the harlot. She asked uh, these spies to be remembered and to be spared when Israel eventually made its advancement on her city in exchange for the kindness that she had shown to them by hiding them and then by lying when the, when the authorities eventually showed up. The Bible says in Joshua 2, verses 12 and 13, Rahab is speaking. She said, now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father, and my mother, and my brethren, and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And we don't have time to get into Rahab, all of her story, but you will find that Rahab is a woman of incredible faith. Because she says to these spies, she says, listen, we all are trembling at your arrival. We know what is waiting for us. We have heard of how God delivered you from the nation of Egypt. We have heard about how God has parted the Red Sea for you. We've heard about how God has sent manna down from heaven and has sent quail uh, from heaven to provide uh, for your needs and to meet your needs. And we all quake in fear. And that led her to say, listen, when you come, when you come, because I've showed you kindness, we know you're going to conquer the city. This city that perhaps to the children of Israel looked almost insurmountable, these walls and, and, and this fortress type of a city. And yet here is Rahab and she's saying, we already know we are toast. We already know that our, our, our doom is secure. When you come, because I've showed you kindness, would you be so kind to me as to spare me? and to spare my family, and to spare my house? The spies promised that they would spare her when they returned the Bible says in Joshua 2 and verse number 14, the men answered her, our life for yours. If ye utter not this our business, and it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. So these men went back and they reported and they said to Joshua, here's what we've heard. A woman by the name of Rahab, she lives in Jericho and she's told us, listen, the whole, the whole community, the whole region quakes in fear. The city is ours. And they said, but... She showed us kindness, and she spared our lives, and we made her a promise. And as a result, the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 to 25, that Joshua, as they were preparing for the invasion of Jericho, he reminded all the people, he says, you kill everything that you come across in that city except, except for Rahab and her family, those that are living in her home. Well, this Rahab, this Rahab was spared that day. And Rahab eventually married a Hebrew, 
She was a Canaanite, but she married a Hebrew. His name was Salmon, and together they had a son. Now you'll know his name. You'll recognize his name. It doesn't quite appear the way it does in the Old Testament, but you'll discover that this same Rahab the harlot had a little boy. His name was Boaz. Boaz, and that leads us to the third woman that is found in this particular text. We discover her name in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5. Her name is Ruth. Ruth. The Bible says, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Ruth was born and raised in Moab, enemy territory to the nation of Israel. And she met and she married a a Hebrew who was sojourning in Moab, uh, trying to avoid a famine with his family. Within 10 years of this family leaving the nation of Israel and landing in Moab, both of the, both of the boys marrying Moabite women, within 10 years of all of that happening, Ruth's husband, Ruth's brother-in-law, and Ruth's father-in-law have all died, prompting her mother-in-law, a woman by the name of Naomi, to return to Israel where she was from to be surrounded and supported by family and friends for the remaining years of her life. Ruth, at that point in time, is faced with a decision. And Ruth chose to return, to go back with her, to join her. And, and she determined, Ruth determined, to adopt the culture and religion of Israel as her own. The Bible says in Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, Quit asking, she's saying, quit asking me to leave you or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also of aught but death part thee and me. Listen, this isn't some Hebrew girl. This is a Moabite. And Ruth proclaims this great declaration of faith and of steadfastness and determination shortly after arriving in Israel. Ruth met a man by the name of Boaz. Ruth's mother-in-law would be Rahab the harlot. The same Boaz born to Salmon and Rahab, Ruth met and married, and together they had a little boy by the name of Obed. It's all found right here in Matthew chapter number one. It's also found throughout your Old Testament scriptures. And because of the way some of our books are situated, sometimes we don't associate one with the other. But if you'll study the genealogical record, you will find these things to be true. The fourth woman that is given to us that has somewhat of a dubious you know, background, somewhat of a little troubling to be very honest with you, her her name is never referenced in this particular account, but she's here nonetheless. And it's found in chapter number one in verse number six, where the Bible says, And Jesse begat David the king, and David begat Solomon, of her that had been the wife of Urias. The fourth woman listed in the genealogical record of the Lord Jesus Christ. Her name is discovered like this, her that had been the wife of of Urias. Once again, Urias is spelled a little bit differently than, than we understand it to be spelled, in, in, at least in the Old Testament. And of course, some of this is because Matthew is more than likely writing in the Greek language, and the Old Testament is given to us in Hebrew, and so there's a little bit of a difference there. But we know this woman, 
more commonly as Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, or in this case, Urias, when he was called away to battle to fight for Israel. While he was away, she, she participated in an extramarital affair with the king of Israel, a man by the name of David. We don't know to what extent the Lord held Bathsheba accountable. In other words, was she forced into this? Was she manipulated, coerced? Was she an eager participant? Was she a willing participant? We really, we really don't know. It definitely seems like God ultimately held David accountable and responsible for this. But, but, but she was a part of it one way or another. And when David learned that Bathsheba was expecting just as Judas had, a, had one, one encounter with Tamar and come to find out we're expecting twins, David has one encounter, as far as we know, with Bathsheba, and lo and behold, she gets word to him, I am expecting, and you're the father, because my husband Uriah has been away. And when David learns that that's the case, he tries to bring Uriah home to cover his tracks. You know the story. And Uriah, of course, comes home, but he refused. He refused to go home to be with his wife when his fellow soldiers were on the battlefield. David ultimately sent him back to the battle with a note informing his superiors to put him in the hottest part of the battle and to retreat from him. You see, David knew something about Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. There are 40 men that are listed in the Old Testament as some of David's mighty men. And David knew the character and the integrity of Uriah. And he knew that if Uriah was in the hottest part of the battle, there would be no way that he would retreat. And so David thought, what's the quickest way to be done with Uriah would be for the other men to retreat and leave Uriah there all alone. Uriah carried that death warrant, that death notice with him, never, never seemed to open it, delivered it to his superior. And within a few days, Uriah was killed. The child that was conceived between David and Bathsheba died, but they eventually would marry and they would have other children, one of those children being named Solomon, who is identified here. The final woman that is found in this genealogical record is a woman by the name of Mary. We find her in Matthew 1 and verse number 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Mary, of course, was a young virgin who was a spouse to be Joseph's wife when an angel visited her and told her she was going to have a son. But not just any son. No, the Lord had chosen her to carry the Son of God, the Messiah. This child would not be conceived normally as a product of a man and a woman coming together. No, this child would be conceived of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says in Luke 1, 34 and 35, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She says, How can I have a child? I've, I, I've never known a man in that way. Listen to what the Lord said to her. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Mary's background is relatively obscure and unknown. We know very, very little about her prior to the Holy Ghost coming upon her. 
She was not marrying into royalty or wealth. She was marrying a tradesman, a a, a carpenter. Her life would be greatly interrupted and inconvenienced by this new development. However, she displays unusual submission and surrender to God's will. When she replies to the angel in Luke 1.38, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. I suppose this is a sufficient explanation of who these women are. We've tried to highlight their stories as quickly as we possibly can. I want to conclude tonight by asking this question. Are there some spiritual truths that can be gleaned from their inclusion in this list? In other words, what do you suppose God is trying to tell us? Do you, think he, do you think he just sort of slipped up here and he accidentally included some women where hardly you ever find wives, daughters, sisters, none of that is, is, is very, very usually found in the genealogical records. Do you think this was an accident or do you think God did this on purpose? I think we all know the answer to that. I think we know that God doesn't do anything by accident. That everything God does, he does with a purpose and with a plan in mind. And I want to propose to you that these women teach us three great truths about the coming of our Messiah. The first great truth that I want to present to you is this, and and I'll hurry through this. Number one, I want to say this. The first great truth is this. Christ came to save all men. Christ came to save all men and, of course, women. You see, two of the women named were not of Hebrew lineage. It is possible that Bathsheba was also a foreigner because she was married to a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. It's possible that Bathsheba might have been a Hittite as well. Rahab was a Canaanite, while Ruth was a Moabite. Yet according to God's divine plan, both of these women were grafted into the Hebrew race. More specifically, they became the vessel. They became the, uh, the, 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 the tool through which God would eventually give us the Messiah. These women, these Moabites, these Canaanites, potentially even this Hittite, all of them are adopted. They're grafted into the Hebrew faith and into the Hebrew culture and even into the Hebrew race in order to give us the Messiah. Well, I was born a Gentile. Can I say that Christ's blood was shed for me and for all men, and by believing on his name and trusting in his finished work, listen, I will never be a Hebrew physically, but listen, I became a Hebrew spiritually by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hold your place here, and I want you to go with me to Romans chapter number two. I want you to see I want you to see how important it is that every one of us become a Hebrew spiritually, that you be a Jew spiritually. Look with me, if you would, in Romans chapter number two. Romans chapter number two in verse number 28, would you? The apostle Paul is writing, and he says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. In other words, words, if if there are identifying characteristics as you see someone, and perhaps we, we, we in our culture and here on the east side of Cleveland, there's a number of Jewish communities, and, and, and many of them maybe could be identified because they wear uh, the little thing on their heads, it's called a yarmulke. 
Perhaps maybe you've been in some, uh, some very traditional Jewish settings and you'll see that some of the men, they wear, uh, they wear their sideburns sort of, sort of curled on the side or, or maybe, they, maybe they wear some dangling strings that come uh, around their waist and, 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 and you say, well, by, I, I can identify, I can tell that that person is a Jew. Paul is saying, listen, it's not about being a Jew outwardly. It's not about wearing uh, uh, something on your head or, uh, or, or shaving the women, many of them shaving their head when they get married and wearing a wig for the rest of their life. Some of these things you may not even be aware of, but these are things that the Jews do. It's part of their culture. It's not about wearing the, uh, the sideburns there on the side of your head or the little phalanges that come uh, off of your waist. That doesn't matter. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You, you may have been born a Gentile. You can't change that. But I want you to know something. In order, in order for you to have eternal life, you must, listen, you must be circumcised in your heart and in your spirit. You must become a Jew inwardly by belief and faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go with me to Romans chapter 4, would you? And look in verse number 10. Romans chapter 4, you're just a chapter or two away. Look in verse number 10. How was it then reckoned? Speaking of Abraham and his faith and the righteousness that he was given, well, how did he get this righteousness? How was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In other words, before, listen, before Abraham ever took on that identifying mark that God demanded of him, before, before he'd ever done that, God had declared him righteous because he was willing to obey God and he was willing by faith to follow God. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. So in other words, in order for you to go to heaven, you must become a son of Abraham. I'm talking about spiritually, I'm not talking about physically. It's impossible for us to become a child of Abraham physically. But listen, Abraham is the father of all those who believe. It began with him. God carved out this people, began with him. Let's continue reading verse number 11. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. You know, you know what he's saying? He's saying this, that Jesus Christ came to save everybody. I was just reading my own personal Bible reading this morning. The Apostle Paul was so desperate to get back to Jerusalem for a feast. He was warned several times, don't go back there. And eventually he went back and, and the Jews got a hold of him and they went crazy. And um, he was able to be spared by the chief, uh, by the chief centurion there. And, and, he, and he asked for an audience. He asked to be able to speak to the people that were an angry mob about him. And he stood and he began to give his testimony. It's found, I believe it's Acts chapter number 22. I just read it this morning. It's fascinating. He talks about the testimony that he gave and, and what happened in his life. And when he got to this line, he said that God sent me 
to the Gentiles. The crowd listened. They were quiet. They were interested in what he had to say. But when that Jewish mob heard Paul say that the God of heaven sent him to the Gentiles to proclaim the truth of the gospel, the Bible tells us that the crowd went nuts and they would no longer listen to what he had to say. Now listen, that may, that may have been the spirit of the Jewish people during that point in time. But I want you to know something. That was never the spirit of God. You see, God came, God sent his son Jesus, and he came, listen, to save all men. Moabites, Hittites, Canaanites, Americans, folks living in the Middle East, folks living in Africa, folks living in South America, all over the world. Christ came to save all men. You see, Jesus is not concerned with skin color. He's not concerned with language differences. He's not concerned with cultural differences. Sadly, sadly, these things have divided many of us in our world and in our culture. But I want you to know something. The heart of God is a heart for every skin color. It is a heart for every language spoken. It is a heart for every culture and every race of people. You see, a spirit exists in our world preferring one race over another. That's nothing new. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles and considered them dogs, didn't they? In the early days of U.S. history, didn't America adapt the use of slavery here as it had been done in other places? And here black men were not considered as much of a human being as white men were? That that was never in the eyes of God, but that was in the eyes of fallen sinful men. It's not what God intended. It's not how God designed it. God has a heart for everyone. Wasn't it in the 1930s and 1940s that the Germans murdered six million Jews and countless others based on their race and the superiority that the Germans perceived they had in themselves? Listen, I want you to know something. The world may embrace divisions and differences, but may those things never gain a stronghold in God's church. God forbid that we'd ever look down our nose at someone that doesn't look just like us, that doesn't live where we live, and that doesn't talk just like us, and maybe doesn't dress just like us. No, listen, Jesus Christ came to save all men. Not just Jews, and not just me, and not just you. Not those who are my skin color or speak my language or live in my country. No, no, no. Jesus came. Jesus came. God's church should be full of Moabites. It should be full of Canaanites. It should be full of Hittites. You understand, those people don't exist anymore. But you get the idea, right? It should be full of people who are different than others. Because God, God sent his son Jesus into this world. And he came to save all men I say the lineage of Christ proves, listen, there is room for every race in the family of God. And can I take it a step further? There's room for every race in the church of God. I I, I love the fact that meeting right now while we're meeting is a Spanish congregation. Earlier this afternoon was a gypsy congregation that met. I love the fact that this church sends out missionaries and I'd love love to do more in this region. I'd love to, to start fellowships and start Bible studies and church services for different groups of people that speak different languages that might be a little bit more comfortable speaking you know, their own language, hearing the message in their own language. I'd love to do it. If God sends folks our way, we're going to do it. Why? Because there's, there's no room for division in the church of God. Everyone, everyone is welcome in the family of God and in the church of God. So we see this teaches us that Christ came to save all men. But I want, to know, I want you to know secondly There's a second great truth, and here it is. Not only did Christ come to save all men, but you must know this, Christ can save all all men. 
Not only did he come to save all men, but he can save anyone. This list proves it, doesn't it? Three of the women on this list are primarily known because of their sexual immorality. I don't use that word very often in a public setting like this, but I want to drive the point home to you. These women were not morally upstanding women, some of them. Tamar played the role of a harlot and deceived her father-in-law into having a child. Rahab was known as a harlot as that was her primary uh, occupation as a Canaanite. And Bathsheba's name is forever linked to David's wicked adultery and murder of Uriah to cover up his sin. But don't miss this. The redeeming, transforming work done in their lives reminds us that Christ not only came to save all men, but that Christ can save anyone who will come to him with a heart of faith. Hebrews 7, verse number 25, the Bible says, wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Isaiah 45, 22 says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Jeremiah 3.22 says, Return, ye backsliding children, and I will hear your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. As I stand here in front of you tonight, it is likely in this room that everyone in here has participated in some things that you're not proud of. Maybe in this room there's someone who's had a child out of wedlock. Maybe there's someone in this room who's been arrested and incarcerated. Maybe there's someone in this room that has battled addictions and maybe even still battling some addictions. Maybe there's some people in this room who have been divorced. Others who maybe have been unfaithful to their marital vows. We could go on and on listing maybe some of the various sins that oftentimes we recoil in horror when we hear about. Perhaps, like Rahab, those things have even come to define you. Rahab the harlot your name and whatever sin it was that you were involved in that you are trying to still recover from. I say that Rahab was known as a harlot, but no such designation is found of her in Matthew chapter number one. She's simply Rahab. There's no, there's no title, the harlot after that. No, no, she's simply Rahab. She's the, she's the wife of a man by the name of Salmon. She is the mother of a boy by the name of Boaz. And at, that, at this point in time, listen, that's all that matters. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ can save all men. Amen. When someone sees God and someone views God in the way that he is to be viewed and someone begins to live according to his commandments and according to his laws, listen, life for them is forever changed. What I'm saying is if Christ can save Tamar and he can save Rahab and he can save Bathsheba, he can save you too. He can save that coworker that you are convinced is so far gone that they'll never, be, they'll never be saved. He can save that child that is so rebellious has caused you so much heartache. He can save that fellow student in your classroom, uh, that neighbor that lives down the street from you, uh, that their life was nothing but a mess. Weren't, weren't, weren't some of these women, weren't some of their lives a mess before they, before they were grafted into the spiritual family of the Hebrews? Before they were saved by God's amazing grace? No doubt about it. Christ can save everyone. Christ came to save everyone. Let me say finally, don't miss this, everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs Christ. 
shortly after receiving the news that she was going to be the one who had carried Jesus in her womb, who had given birth to him and raised him in her home. Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, who was also with a child that was unique and a child sent by God. When Mary entered Elizabeth's home, they were cousins, Mary and Elizabeth were. And when she entered her home, the baby that Elizabeth was carrying was old enough to be able to move somewhat in the womb. And when she entered and she greeted her, Mary's voice spoke and she greeted her cousin Elizabeth. When that happened, the Bible tells us that Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb, leading Elizabeth to proclaim Mary is blessed among women, according to Luke 1 in verse 42. But I want you to notice Mary's response. Her response was not one of pride and arrogance. No, Mary was humbled that she had been chosen to carry this child, and she acknowledged just how unworthy she was for this role and this responsibility. Listen to her words in Luke 1, 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God. Now listen to these next two words. My Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. Listen, little is known about Mary prior to Christ's birth. And truthfully, there really isn't a whole lot known about her after his birth. Here's why. Listen, the emphasis was never supposed to be about Mary. Listen, Mary became important because of the child she had. But it's never about Mary. I'm afraid that there have been people that have, have built Mary into this person. Listen, God never intended Mary to be important. Mary's really not all that significant. The child she carried was significant. The child that was born to her was significant. She said, she said listen, I'm just a handmaiden. The Lord has regarded my low estate. I am nothing. He is everything. He is my Savior. Though we don't know much about her, we assume, don't we, that she was a moral upstanding, godly, pious young lady, don't we? And yet, and yet, her reaction and our understanding of Scripture reminds us, listen, that the best among us as human beings still need a Savior. In other words, as you look at your life tonight, you may not find anything outstanding in your life like Tamar had or like Bathsheba had or like Rahab had. You may not find anything that is so far out of sorts, but don't miss this, don't miss this. Jesus didn't just come to save the wicked, ungodly foreigners. Jesus came to save perhaps maybe one of the most godly women that ever lived, a woman by the name of Mary. We assume she, we assume she had to be really special for God to have chosen her to carry this child, and yet from her own lips she proclaims, my soul doth magnify the Lord and rejoice in God, my Savior. The point is this, everybody needs a Savior. Everyone needs Christ. You may look at your life and you may think, well, I'm a pretty good person, I've got it all together. But Mary understood that Christ had come not just to save the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Bathshebas, but he also came to save people like her. That she, too, needed a Savior, reminding us, that everyone, everyone needs Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. The generation of Jesus Christ, it's given to us here in this text and it's a beautiful thing. 
absolutely beautiful. The redeeming work of God's grace is on full display here in this first chapter as we dig really deep and we consider these women and what made them unusual and what made them special and what made them who they were and what God did in their lives. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment, can we just be reminded as we enter into this Christmas season of why Jesus came? He came to save all men. No matter what skin color, no matter what language spoken, no matter what country they hail from, no matter what culture they identify with, Jesus came to save all men. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that he didn't just come to save the Jews? Oh, he came, he came unto his own. His own received him not. But God's plan all along, God's plan all along wasn't for just the Jews to be saved. God had a heart for every man and every woman. And God used the Jews in a special way. In order to be saved, you must spiritually become a Jew. Not in a physical sense, but you must, you must believe in the God of the Hebrew people. You must believe in the Messiah that he sent. You must identify with Father Abraham by having a similar faith to the faith that he had and that he exhibited. Jesus came to save all men. Is there someone, is there someone that maybe you thought, you know, I don't really want to witness to them. Maybe you've developed a spirit of division or, dare I say it, prejudice. Maybe a spirit of racism towards a group of people. Maybe you feel like they've offended you in some way or they've done something to someone you love. And as a result, there's a bitterness that has developed in your heart. Listen, that may be your spirit, but that's not the spirit of Christ. He came to save all men. We learn he can save all men. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that there's no sin? There's no sin that you can commit. There's nothing that you could do that Christ would have to look at you and say, I can't forgive you for that. You've gone too far. No, no, listen, you and I, you and I, you and I, we, we abuse God's grace time and again, and yet what does he do? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And aren't you reminded of this truth that not only can he save everyone and did he come to save everyone, but that every one of us needs Christ. Is there someone here tonight, is it possible, someone here tonight that have thought, you know, I'm just gonna sort of skate into God's kingdom because I'm a pretty good person and I don't do a whole lot of bad things. Can I remind you, if Mary needed to be saved, and she did, so do you, and so do I, so do every one of us. And may God help us, may God help us to learn these great truths. Maybe, maybe there's someone that just needs to come and just thank the Lord for his mercy and for his grace. Maybe someone needs to be saved tonight. You're here tonight, and you've never repented of your sins. You've never been born again. You've never become a, spiritually, you've never become a Hebrew. God has dealt with you very clearly you may have some outward signs that identify you in that way, but you know, you know that what's really what matters is what's in the heart and what's in the spirit. And God has dealt with you very clearly tonight. Can I invite you to come and do business with the Lord? Would you stand?